Hey, finance fans, you were tuned in to another episode of the Community Money Podcast, much more than a hashtag series, a discussion on jury selection and due process. We sit down with attorney Adrian Hawkins, attorney Dominic Flowers, and my resident co-host, brother Kendall Jenkins, to talk about those such topics. This is a two-part series with the next episode dropping January 2021, because we want to definitely start the new year off right. So at any given time, please make sure that you smash the subscribe button so you can be the first to know about any episodes that drop from the Community Money Podcast. This is your host, Guru Ham. Grab a pen and a piece of paper, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Peace. Hello, everybody. Hi, good evening. Nice, nice, nice. So, oh man, without us getting directly into it, I just, the epicness about this episode right now, uh, knowing where we started in August of 2019 and seeing uh, the type of quality uh, host that we have today, I'm I'm astounded. So, no, number one, uh, attorney Adrian Hawkins, can you... Can you introduce yourself? Let us know where you grew up, what school you graduated from, uh, what sorority you're a part of, where, when you cross, where you cross, you know, what your aspirations are growing up. Just give us the whole, just give us the whole deal. Because I know my people are going to be excited. Let's do it. So my name is Adrienne Hawkins. I am from Baltimore, Maryland. I graduated from University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC. I crossed in fall away uh, to Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated, the Lambda Phi chapter. Um, I... When I left Baltimore, I went to law school at Rutgers, Newark, where I then went to the Bronx District Attorney's Office, where I spent four and a half years as a prosecutor. I was in a felony trial bureau by the time that I left. And I currently work for J.P. Morgan in New York City for risk management. Super impressive resume. I... I, I had it all written down, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I was not I was not going to chop anything up for you. Uh, bro, Brother Flowers, can you uh, talk to the people about, you know, introduce yourself where you grew up, what school you graduated from, your aspirations growing up, your career is held and what you do currently? Sure. My name is Dominique Flowers. I grew up in Clinton, Maryland and Prince George's County. I attended University of Baltimore. I graduated in 2005. After that, I went to Howard Law School and graduated in 2008, um, took the Maryland bar, passed, and became a licensed attorney. Um, prior to passing the bar, I worked as a criminal investigator at a um, capital defense um, clinic where I had to do investigations on capital murder cases. Uh, upon passing the bar, I started um, working as a lawyer at a small civil litigation firm where I handled civil litigation cases. Following that, I handled bankruptcy cases with clients who were filing for bankruptcy. And after that, I uh, um, started working at the Social Security Administration, where I've been in for the past 10 years as attorney analyst. I make recommendations on uh, Social Security cases um, and appeals from uh, um, administrative law judges. Um, I crossed Nile Phi Theta in 2003 in the spring. And um, growing up, I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a prosecutor growing up, um, but I came out during the recession. So that avenue was open to me, but I'm happy doing what I do now. Nice, nice. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Uh, Adrian, you didn't tell us what you wanted to do when you was growing up. Your aspirations. What were your aspirations? You know, I, I wanted to be a teacher when I was little. And so I, and, you know, quickly discovered that 
children under the age of 18 aren't exactly my speed. And when I got to when I got to college, um, I had like this great epiphany, like, you know what, I'm going to go to law school. I was on my trial in high school. I crushed con law when I was an undergrad. And my family was like, yeah, we know. We were just waiting for you to get with the program. And so I still have aspirations to get into higher education. But yeah, growing up, I, I just wanted to help the people. Nice. And you are definitely doing that today. I appreciate you uh, coming and, and giving us your wisdom on a Community Money Podcast, much more than a hashtag episode. Brother Kendall, our resident co-host, you are yeah, back again. Yeah. Tell the people who you are, man. Introduce yourself, okay, what so, school you went to, aspirations growing up. You you know what to do. You done did it twice already. Yeah. Kendall Jenkins. I'm from North Carolina originally. I graduated from North Carolina Central University. Ironically, Adrian, I'm sitting here listening to you, and I started out wanting to be a lawyer. And I ended up being a teacher. So I'm going to tell you, you ain't missing much, but it's okay. (laughs) You can get a start education anyway. But so, yeah, I'm from North Carolina, uh, a member of Iota Fight Theater Fraternity Incorporated, South Omega Chapter, as of fall 2019. And I'm an educator here in Prince George's County and a realtor in Prince George's County. And happy to be back for another episode. Nice, nice. Uh, So, Brother Jenkins, you said you're a real, and you're with Weikert, right? Yes, Wiker Realtors and Bowie. So for all my Community Money listening fans, he's been on this episodes before. He knows if you need help buying a house, if you have any questions, even if mm-hmm. you're not in the state of Maryland, please feel free to reach out to Brother Kendall Jenkins. I'll have him drop his email, um, you know, some point at this episode, or I'll just drop it in the bio for the episode. So and everybody- even, if you're not, even if you're not trying to buy, if you, even if you're in the need for a little education... Give me a call and I can hook you up. Nice. Absolutely. See how we are helping all the way up and down the line (laughs) on the Community Money Podcast. I love it. I love it. So let's just jump. Let's just jump right into it. Let's give the people what they want. Um, Adrian, first first question. Uh, And and this might seem a little silly, right? Because we've all, I guess we've had this moment when that postcard comes in the mail and it's like, hey, you got jury duty. So not to say that we should not go because we all should, because it's it's what we should be doing. And we'll get into why we should be doing that uh, later. What are some of the most effective ways that you've seen people get out of jury duty um, when they got that postcard in the mail and they actually showed up for the uh, the process? Well, there's a there's a couple of there's a couple of things you can do. So when you first get the card, um, depending on what state you're in, you can you can defer that that service for a period of time off the jump. Like you can say I'm a student or I'm working right now and I'm not going to be able to show up for jury duty, but you you know, that only works for a a limited period of time. Eventually you're not going to be able to put it off any longer. And so if you get um, regular jury, what what people think of as your trial jury, your pettit jury, Mm -hmm. that's going to be, you know, the, the, the trial attorneys will tell you about how long they're expecting you to serve. And if that's going to be too long and it causes you financial hardship or you have childcare issues, or you know you you have to show up to your job, or you don't get paid, and what they'll pay you for jury duty won't cover the bills. Those are your standard ways that you know. Those are your legitimate reasons that mm. you're going to get out of jury duty. Mm. Some people get up there and just say wild things. So when <laughs> you're the child, when you're looking for someone who can say, "I'll be fair and impartial and apply the law as the judge instructs me on it," right? That's the question each each trial attorney is going to ask. And you want to be confident that the juror is going to give you a good answer to. But some jurors will get up there and say, you know, I just don't like white people. I don't trust them at all. Um, I, if a white person got on the stand, I would not be able to, you know, apply the law to what they're saying fairly because I have this bias. And you would think that nobody would get up there in a public proceeding and say something that crazy. But it actually um, worked, though. 
yeah, I'm, you, you're going, you can struck for cause if you tell me that there's a whole group of people that you can't respect, particularly if I have witnesses who are white, you know? So um, some will say the burden of this is too heavy and, and, and I don't think that I can make this decision, particularly in criminal cases where incarceration is on the table, mm-hmm. even though the jury doesn't particularly make the sentencing recommendation, you know, they know a conviction could lead to jail and some people are uncomfortable with that. Um, so if you're, you know, so if you're outside of your standard reasons, but you get into, you start getting into some of your biases and you can't be re- rehabilitated by the trial, uh, the trial attorneys, then, you know, you're, you're going to get told to have a nice day and thank you for coming. Nice, nice. Brother Flowers, have, do you have any instances of where you've seen anything like this uh, in your dealings uh, as an attorney? No, I actually have never tried a jury trial. I've only done bench trials before. Um, the only thing I can add, and, and Adrian did a good job explaining it, but um, you want to be careful when you try to get out of the jury duty. Make sure you have a compelling reason. Um, in Maryland, um, you can be fined up to a thousand dollars and jailed for sixty days if you if you miss out on jury duty, um, as well as if you fail to complete the juror qualification form. So just make sure that whatever reason you give, there's a um, it's got to be extreme, an extreme inconvenience or public necessity or some type of undue hardship argument behind it. Um, I believe Maryland allows you to reschedule uh, your jury selection one time, but you still have to have a compelling reason to do so. What happens if you What happens if you ignore the summons that you receive for jury duty? If you ignore the summons, it, it really just depends. <laughs> okay, don't do that. Yes, don't do that. Don't you, you, cause you, yourself the heartache of, of, of being on the other side of that question, Kendall. Yeah, there was a case recently. Um, I don't know where it was, but I heard on the news where uh, a gentleman, you know, he skipped jury. Well, he came and he left early and he was jailed. And so it, it can't happen. The, the court may hold you in contempt. And that's not the time for you to have your first experience with a jail cell. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you can get fined. They can call your job. Like, I don't do it. It's not it is not worth the heartache. It's better to answer the summons and and, you know, go from there. Perhaps you show up and it's somebody you went to law school with like, oh, this is so. And so I know them. You're definitely getting struck because you can't you know, you can't have a personal relationship with people who are um, who are part of the trials. So it's it's just not worth the heartache. Don't try and pay your parking tickets too in New York. <laughs> some of those tickets uh, when they go unpaid, you get what's called a scoff. And if you get a certain number of scoffs, then you are going to get arrested for a for a for a misdemeanor or a felony, depending on how many you have. Wow. I know a lot of people are like, well, I'm from Maryland. I got this ticket in New York, but I'm going to just come. I'm going to just go back to Maryland and ignore it. Don't do it. Don't do that. And wow. just remember, even if you're called for jury duty, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to serve. So you can go down to the court, you sit into the room, you get your number and your number's not called or you get called to go to another room, you're waiting there, and you're, you're excused. So there are other, there's opportunities for you to be excused the day of, even if you're called. Yeah. Um, and you also make sure that you're, when you receive a jury summons, you have a number, and so most states will allow you to check on the day before to see if your yeah. number's going to be called. And so, you know, I know I've actually wasted my time by not doing that when I was called to serve in the jury, and I took off work and went down to the courthouse, and lo and behold, my number wasn't even um, called. Um, and I couldn't get an excuse because I didn't serve in the jury. So I had to just take leave. Wow. So, so, um, so brother flowers, one more time, what are the fines in the state of Maryland? Cause we were talking about scoffs, which is a crazy cause for my new York listeners, I know y'all didn't know that. 
Uh, so, so we want to make sure that we want to also cover Maryland. Um, and I don't have the, 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 the legal, uh, answers for the state of Pennsylvania, but I definitely will see if I can put some of those in the bio when you guys are listening to this episode a little bit later. Um, if I get the time to, but in Maryland, what are the fines brother files go over those one more time? Sure. So if you don't appear for your jury service at the date and time and direct at the time directed by the summons, you can be fined up to a thousand dollars or put in jail for up to 60 days or both. If you show up but don't complete your jury service, you can still be fined for up to $1,000, or be put in jail for up to 90 days or both. Wow. And there's also penalties for failing to complete the jury qualification form accurately and not returning the form. So that's the form you receive with, with your summons. If you don't fill it out and complete it, there are also penalties associated with that as well. Wow, that is insanity. So for the individual who can't afford to take off of work, they also can't afford to not go. Uh, because then they will be fined about a thousand dollars or if they get thrown in jail for 60 days, I'm pretty sure they would lose their income or get thrown in jail for 90 days. So it's kind of like this is they made it. So uh, the law was written. So you cannot ignore this. This isn't something that you can mm-hmm. that, that you can ignore, and that, and I think that that's also telling. So for my Maryland residents, for my Maryland listeners, make sure that you don't burn that postcard up. If call them back, shoot them an email, carry a pigeon, do whatever you shoot a text, whatever you need to do, send an email, let them know, hey, I got the card and I'm on my way. Um, great, great answers, guys. Great answers for those. Uh, so I have a so I have a question um, for you, Adrian. If I serve jury duty already, how long could it be until? I'm selected again, or would I be selected again? Is there a timeline when it comes to that? Yeah, it's so in New York, it's like six years. So if if you're and it's not just if you sit, if you actually render a verdict, like if you call and or if you go and you're impaneled, but the case settles or you wind up not getting picked for the jury and you're still done like if you're two days of service, then it's going to be about six years before you get called to do a jury again Mm. for jury duty again. Okay. So there's a there's a significant period of time because, you know, the courts understand that you can't overwhelm people's schedules, asking them to come back year after year and take off this significant chunk of time for jury duty. Nice. Nice. So that's only six years, you said? Mm-hmm. Six years? It may, have, it may have changed, but I'm pretty sure it was six years last okay. time I checked. OK. And it, it has anything is there anything that has impacted that to make it? Uh, to make it six years. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, well, we noticed that uh, we get more, I guess, participation if we ask people to come back over a six year period or we can still meet our parameters if we make it six instead of making it eight. Is there anything uh, on the books that states why they chose that number? Because six is so, I, I think about random numbers. It's such a random number. Like, oh, yeah, after you do it six years later, then you have the opportunity to come back. It's like, no, is it's, there it's like a- random. There probably is some sort of like legislative reason behind that. But I think because you get your jurors from like um, people getting their license, whether or not they're going to be organ donors, voter registration, I think they're just trying to average like how long you're going to be in one place and like what's the likelihood um, that they'll be able to get you more than once in that one place. But don't quote me on that. Uh, no, trust me, I will not. Uh, <laughs> but but I, but we definitely take, uh, you know, you being here as expertise. So at the end of the day, even if we can't quote you, I appreciate the information that you're providing. Um, and But that's what Google is for. Right. <laughs> so we got to make sure that we're Googling the laws in our particular state. So we know how these things actually affect us as potential jurors. Yes. And read the fine print. Most of the questions that you have 
they're answered on that summons or there's a phone number that you can call and somebody will walk you through what the instructions are. We, we are always quick to ignore the fine print. Maybe you don't have your glasses or your magnifying glass. So you think that fine print doesn't apply to you. But the questions that you might have or concerns or do I have to come? Do I not have to come? Nine times out of 10, the answer is right there on the summons. Yep, for real. And I, and I tell uh, a lot, even my investor group, I say the devil is in the details and the terms yeah. and conditions is is where you can actually find out uh, what applies to you, what you can actually do. You know, this world is very much black and white, but it is just as much gray as it is. So you have to look at those terms and conditions and the fine print and figure out how you can actually maneuver uh, through every situation. Right. I'm a, I'm a, a, a definite advocate for that. Uh, Brother Flowers, uh, next question is for you. So. Can an employer, because, you know, employers try to make sure that you can stay at work uh, for, for as much as you can. They try to make sure they can utilize that time wisely. If something like this happens, uh, according to your expertise, can an employer prevent you from serving on a jury duty if you are selected? Can they do that? Do they have the power to do so? Well, most states, they can't. Um, I know in Maryland, an employer can't fire you because you lost time from work as a, as a result of attending court for jury service or because you had to be in, in, prox in proximity to the court for jury service. Um, they can't fire you if you exercise your right not to work on a day in which you are on jury service. Um, and they can't require you to use your leave, whether it's annual sick or vacation for jury service. Mm. Um, so there are certain circumstances where um, on a day in which you serve jury, if you're summoned and you appear for jury service for four hours or more, including your travel time, um, your employer can't require you to work on that day. Um, so, but you really want to make sure that when you go down to jury service, you, there's a certificate or a slip that says that you can't serve. Um, and interesting in Maryland, you can't lose unemployment benefits by taking the day off, um, to, to go to serve jury duty. And actually employers can be fined if they try to take, um, adverse action against you, um, in certain cases in certain states. Nice. So again, for all my Maryland listeners, when you get that postcard, you need to send the information back because you have to look at it like this. Do I want to get fined a thousand dollars or get potentially sent to prison for 60 days or show up and then not complete it and get fined up to a thousand dollars or go to jail for 90 days? Or do I want to just ignore it in general and then have to deal with all of this stuff? Or do I just want to go and, and, and be good knowing that my job, you know, the job that I have is secure? Um, because it sounds like the law is actually in favor of the individuals who are participating. Do I got? Do I have that correct, you guys? Yes. What is the difference between a regular jury and a grand jury? Sure. So the way I think of it is like this. A grand jury is to decide whether there's probable cause to charge someone with a crime. Um, a traditional jury, which is also called a pettit jury, listens to evidence in the courtroom and decides the guilt or innocence of the defendant um, in a criminal case. So it, it, to, to, the way to think about that is a grand jury and a pettit jury or regular jury um, have different roles, attendees, evidences, privacy, times, and, and um, um, different requirements for, to find the person um, to make a decision. So, for example, the role of a jury, of a trial jury, is to ascertain beyond a reasonable doubt whether someone is guilty or not. Um, the grand jury, um, you only serve, the um, grand jury, on, on the other hand, serve to advise the prosecutor whether or not probable cause exists um, in the case to actually 
indict a suspect on criminal charges. So this is at the lowest level, the person's being indicted. Um, with grand juries, the attendees are usually li- limited to the grand jury members and the prosecutor and the, and the court staff. So typically the defendant does not come to grand jury sessions. Um, the, ev- the, the level of evidence at both the trial and the grand jury are also different as well. So at a, um, at a grand, at a trial jury, um, there are more strict levels of evidence that are allowed um, in court because you're talking about court. There's evidentiary rules and requirements that all lawyers have to follow. A grand jury, it's a little more lax, um, and you can really present really any evidence um, to the grand jury to, to show that this person should be indicted. Privacy, grand jury proceedings are kept private, um, whereas trial jury cases are usually open to the public. Um, and then the time for trial juries is usually... They, they meet every day for a relatively short period of time. Grand juries, on the other hand, convene for specific times um, every month over a period of six months a year. Mm. Um, so those are some differences between the grand jury and the uh, trial jury. Nice, nice. And I know, Adrian, we were talking offline, man, last week uh, <laughs> about um, the, 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 fact, the percentages of how many cases actually go to trial. So would you like mm-hmm. to actually talk about that a little bit? You know, I, I told you sure. our conversation should have been recorded, but now you got the shine. You got the spotlight. <laughs> um, so I looked into it. No one has the official numbers, but at about the last research that I saw from the Pew Center, it's something like 97 percent of cases are settled before they go to trial. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, like 9.7 times out of 10, you're not going to see a trial. Um, and you're going to it's going to be a plea or the case is going to get dismissed or something. Something's going to happen in between that all important trial stage. And I think the important thing to, to know about a, a, an alarming statistic like that is the system is not built for everyone to exercise their rights to the fullest extent of the law. Mm. If every defendant walked in and said, I'm not taking any plea, I'm going to trial. We don't have enough court officers, enough judges, enough jurors, enough prosecutors, enough defense attorneys enough police for that to happen so the system is kind of built on the fact that some a lot of these cases are going to be disposed of um and it's 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 alarming but once you start once you start to get into the process like especially if you can get a favorable disposition a lot of people don't have the time to show up can't miss work child care issues don't want to continue to have this thing held over them whether they're the victim or the you know defendant or in a civil case whether, you know, they're the plaintiff or the defendant. Um, and so a lot of it is about time. But, you know, we, we absolutely do not have enough people to try every single case that comes before court. Man, that I is a question. A question. Go ahead, Kendall. Um, sorry. Uh, grand juries and pettit juries. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do I know when I'm being summoned to jury duty what type of trial I'm going to? If it's a pettit jury, you don't know if it's criminal or civil, or civil, but you know if you're going to grand jury or pettit jury because the the timing is so different. So grand jury, you're gonna you're gonna be there for a minute, so they have to they have to give you fair warning so that you can try and make those arrangements beforehand. Man, Adrian, that was very much an alarmist statistic, very much. So ninety seven percent do not go to trial, according to according to Pew Research. For but for the three percent that do uh, go to trial, um. Let's say it was for a grand jury. What type of trials uh, require a grand jury to actually prosecute uh, when it comes down to, I guess, the information that was given? If somebody, if so they would really, go to. So it really depends. So you're not going, you're not really going to see grand jury in civil cases. That's really going to be more on the criminal side. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are 
more often than not going to be your felonies are going to require grand jury action. So the crime is committed, comes to the prosecutor's office. They're deciding what they're going to do. Um, For example, in the state of New York, if you get arrested and charged with a felony and you get put in on bail, you have 144 hours. That's six days to get a grand jury conviction. And that is 144 hours from the time that you're arrested. So if you're arrested at 10 a.m. on Friday and you're not arraigned or anything like that until, you know, 10 a.m. on Monday, two days have already gone by and you still need to meet your grand jury burden, you know, in the beginning of the week. But that's going to be for felonies. Your your misdemeanors don't require grand jury action. You can present misdemeanors to the grand jury, but again, for the for the for the time and resources, um, that would that would overwhelm an already overwhelmed grand jury system if you put every single crime into the grand jury. Wow. Wow, this is getting so heavy, and I'm sorry that I have to go to a commercial break, but we got to pay some bills a little bit. This is Guru Ham, Community Money Podcast host. We will be, we will be back. Please stay tuned. Hey, everyone. This is Brittany, the Money Coach, CEO and founder of the One Million Families Initiative. During this global pandemic, the majority of people are really feeling an enormous sense of financial uncertainty. 86% of Americans have been financially impacted by COVID-19 and 67% of middle income Americans are just worried about how they would cope if the country had another recession similar to 2008. With these grave statistics, the time is now to re-examine how you manage your money. So here at One Million Families, our mission is to teach people how money works and help them build a plan towards reaching financial independence and creating multiple streams of passive income. That's why we're now offering our financial action plan, which is usually $150 value to all Community Money Podcast listeners completely free of charge from now through September 30th. So all you have to do is text sign me up to 301-304-8588 and I will reach out to you personally. Whether you're just starting out on your financial journey, you need a second look at what you're currently doing, or you're well into becoming financially independent, text sign me up to 301-304-8588 to set up your free financial plan today. And we are back with the Community Money Podcast. The conversation has gotten so deep. Co-host Kendall Jenkins, attorney Dominic Flowers, and attorney Adrian Hawkins. We have got we have gotten so far into the conversation about the jury process and jury selection. So I want to switch it up just a little bit and and talk about this term that I I personally Googled myself. Wadir. Uh, I also heard it in one of my favorite uh, movies, uh, legal movies, My Cousin Vinny. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that. Uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully I'm not showing my age, you know, a little bit. But Joe Pesci, man, he's, he's a guy. Mm. I just pronounced it in the actual movie until I had to Google it. My, we're not going to get into that. So, uh, Adrian, can you explain to us uh, the, the voir dire process um, in general? Like, what is it? The Wadir is one of the few legal terms of art that's actually not Latin, it's French. And basically when you're impaneled and um, the lawyers are determining whether or not you're actually gonna serve on the jury, this is, 
this was one of the most enjoyable parts about trial for me, the, the few times that I got to do it, because it's the only time that you're allowed to talk to the jury, the potential jurors, and they can talk back to you. And basically, you're asking us either you, the lawyers will start out asking or the judge will ask some basic questions. And you're just trying to find out, is this the right juror for the right trial? So, for example, when I second set a homicide case, we were going to have we we're going to have photos of the deceased. And so we need we warn the jurors up front, like we'll have some photos. Some of you might consider them graphic. Will anybody have a problem considering that type of evidence? And you really, at the end of the day, what you're looking for, the, the ultimate goal is, can you be fair and impartial and only consider the evidence that's being presented to you and apply the law as the judge explains it to you? Um, I would say most of the people get up there are lying when they answer that question with <laughs> yes, but um, you know, you can't, you, you're, you're not going to want to say no. You don't want someone calling your job. Like, you know, this person said that um, they can't be fair and impartial to police or they can't be fair and impartial to black people. Um, mm. You might want to look into them, but that's, but you're basically, you're looking for the right, the right people to make up the, the, the jury for your particular case. You said that if somebody says that they are impartial to police officers or they can't be fair in a particular trial, they could actually call your job and inform them about I, I mean, I don't know that anybody has the time to be doing all of that, but <laughs> trials are public proceedings, mm. meaning the public can go and get the minutes and find out what happened. And so much like you want to do on your social media, you want to make sure that you're not in there saying anything that could come back to bite you several years later. Because, you know, if you're someone who wants to have prominence, wants to have a political career, wants to be an entertainer. People will take the time to go back and look at these things. So you wonder how people are getting canceled for tweets from 2009. Like, how did you find that? Um, you know, people take the time and look at it. And so I think people forget a lot of times that trials are public proceedings most of the time and most of the aspects. And so you just want to make sure that you're being truthful, but that you're not up there acting crazy. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, Kendall, you wanted to, you have something to add to that? Yeah, I have a question about voir dire. I hope I said it right. I don't know if I did. But, <laughs> you tried, bro. You good. <laughs> Who's performing this? Is this the defense or the prosecuting uh, team or who's, who's doing this? Is this? And is this the actual jury selection that is taking place? Yes, that's a great question. So both sides are doing it. Um, every, both sides have the opportunity to voir dire the jury. Um, a lot of times your standard background questions like, you know, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Have you ever had any experience with law enforcement? Do you know anyone here? The judge will ask those questions because they're, the answers don't necessarily um, pertain to the case, but each mm -hmm. side has the opportunity to voir dire the jury. So the prosecution will go or the plaintiff, if it's a, if it's a civil case, and then the defense will go as well. We heard a little bit about what questions were being asked. Um, according to your expertise, what are lawyers and judges really looking for during this voir dire process? Like, what are they actually trying to pull out? What, what do you believe that they're trying to do um, because of the questions that they're asking? Where are you from? Where were you born? Do you, you know, what are they trying to do? Sure. So it really depends on whether you're the lawyer for the defendant or the plaintiff. So the key to Wadier is to keep the jurors talking. Um, you know, you don't learn anything by listening to yourself. The attorneys ask these questions, they keep them brief, and they follow up to guide the conversation with the jury. So if you're on the plaintiff side, you know, in a criminal case, um, this is your chance to get justice and hold a guilty party accountable for crime or the wrong. If it's a civil case, um, the jury will determine the degree of fault 
um, any that any given party holds, and so this will have a direct effect on the award amount that you that you will receive or your client will receive. So, from the plaintiff's point of view, um, jury selection is actually more of a process of dismissal. Um, the selection that is your attorney, um, you want to weed out. I guess undesirable members. Um, in this case, undesirable means people who are likely to sympathize with the defense. Um, the, your goal is really to remove jurors who don't identify with the plaintiff and what they have, what they've suffered through in the hands of the defendant. Um, so you really have to paint that story. Uh, usually, the plaintiff goes first, um, which means they set the tone for the jury selection, um, and they pick jurors they're looking for who are very sympathetic to their particular case. Um, so when you switch to defendant, they're pretty much doing the exact opposite. They're looking for jurors who will be predisposed against the prosecution. Um, and this requires a basically careful balancing act. Uh, the plaintiffs will tell a story to a jury, a story of how their client was victimized by defense and how they suffered at the hands of defense. And defense can't afford to try and demonize the plaintiffs. They want to make the defendant look, look very negative. And so, um, as it was stated, um, you know, they're asking questions that deal with, um, you know, the attitudes and beliefs of the jury, jur jurors, um, their life experiences, and they gauge what follow-up questions they can ask them. You know, if they're going to make preemptory strikes about um, striking people from the jury, who they're actually going to um, direct that towards. So basically, it's just a line of questioning to to find out or or dismiss. You said use the word dismiss earlier, basically to dismiss. So it's kind of like uh i don't know when people were watching that the oj right you got to bring oj up so like <laughs> when people were watching like the people versus oj and they were going through this whole 100 person 200 person thing and it's like yeah. juror, juror number 37 you know and it's like oh well they brought him into the judge's chambers hey i, I you you took a picture you got a picture with mr simpson but now you're on the jury do you think that you can and the lawyers were just like no get rid of him one of them is like, yeah, keep them. Other one is like, nah, get rid of it. So that's basically just whoever's going to turn out more favorable to the either the defendant or the the person that is being or the pro, or the prosecution. It's a it's a strategy. It's absolutely a strategy. Legally, you're looking for people who can be fair and imbalanced and apply the law as stated by the judge. But in reality, you need people you need people who be buying what you're selling, um, who are not going to look at a defendant who's young and coming to court in a suit every day and looking great. Meanwhile, two years ago, he was wilding and killed somebody. Like, yeah. you have to get, you have to get people who are, who are going to be, you know, who are going to be able to apply the law, but also like there's just, just some, there's a human aspect to it that the law doesn't necessarily account for. So the homicide that I referenced earlier, the lead attorney was just a white man. And the four person that we wound up going with, I advised him against because it was an older black woman who I could tell immediately disliked him. Mm. And I said, she doesn't like you because you're white. And he's like, you don't know that. And I'm like, well, I'm going to put my several years of being black against your, you know, greater experience at trial. Um, and tell you that I can just, I'm not getting a good vibe. Sometimes it's just the vibe. You don't have, you know, and he didn't listen. And while we did ultimately get a conviction in that case, um, two jurors saw me after the verdict and told me that she was going to be a holdout if they hadn't had some more deliberation, like mm. I said. <laughs> so <laughs> you, really, you really just got, you really just got to find, you, 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 it's a strategy. It's, it's in that trial. Nice. I have a question. I have a question. If both sides are basically involved in the voir dire, how is it possible that sometimes you get lopsided results or you could end up with uh, a 
you, you have a black defendant and you get a jury that's almost completely white. Why doesn't the defense prevent that from happening if they have some say so in the selection process? They're sort of limited because most jurisdictions have preemptory strikes and which means that you can excuse um, up to typically three people for any reason without giving a reason. So after that, you really have to kind of weigh your options. And so, you know, it just depends on the jury pool that you have and who you decide to get rid of and who the other side decides to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. You, have to, you have to use your peremptories, again, strategically, because you have a limited amount of them, meaning you can say, nope, we're gonna dismiss juror number so-and-so for any reason. Um, you, there's no, there's an unlimited number of striking people for cause. So those men, those mm-hmm. reasons that I mentioned earlier, you know, you have financial hardship, childcare issues, you say something that's obviously biased and both, you know, now sometimes you might, a witness, a juror might get up there and say, I'll never trust anything a police officer says. The defense is going to be like, yes, I want this person on the jury. But you know, you'll, the, as, as the plaintiff or the prosecutor, you will make your argument to the judge. Like this is obviously a bias and this person's not rehabilitated. So we're going to strike them. And generally that person's going to get struck for cause. What you want to be careful of in your peremptory strikes is something called a Batson challenge, which is based on the Supreme Court decision, Batson versus Kentucky, which means that you're striking people um, on the basis of race, sex, and I think they've expanded the definition a bit in some of the lower courts to include things like sexual orientation. So to your question, Kendall, about, you know, you can get up and say, I'm raising a Batson challenge because it looks like the prosecution is striking every single Black woman from this jury. And then if you get that challenge made against you, you as the attorney have to then defend why you have struck these people and you have to show some reason other than because they're Black women. So when you're doing your strategy, that might be why you're striking these people from the jury, but you better have a legitimate legal basis for doing so because you don't want to have a Batson challenge against you. So there, there are some, uh, some rules and court findings around trying to prevent things like how did you get all men or how did you get all white? But it really, you know, as, as, as the professor said, um, you have, you have, you, the jury pool is what it is. And so, you know, you can't, you can only go on who you get impaneled. Absolutely. And, and Kendall, just because you brought that question up um, and we talked about the Batson challenge, right? And, and uh, Adrian, you brought up the fact that, you know, they can literally say, hey, you're excusing all of these black people, right? On the basis of, of their black. So, you know, I got to ask you, Kendall, why is it important for black folks to report to jury duty? I know the first question was, how do you get out of it? But now I want you to tell me why it's important for us to actually go. Because realistically, when I'm thinking about what Adrian just said, if the if the prosecution or defense is striking out all of the black folks, what happened if we just give them unlimited black folks? You can't turn everybody down, right? So, but go ahead, Kendall. I think we should revert back to them for this question. But I will <laughs> a lot, and I, I read a lot prior to tonight. I read I read, read about a whole lot of cases that ended up with black defendants and um they started out with good jury pools, maybe 50 and 50 black, 50% white, but somehow right before the trial, it ended up with like one black person on the, on the jury. And so I'm, I was just wondering, you know, we all know about implicit bias. We all know about uh, institutional racism, things that are hidden, things that are not overt, but I'm just wondering how is it possible that the defense is not looking out for the defendant in this case? How are they letting this happen? But I guess you guys just described it. You guys just explained that, I guess. I mean, they, they might be, though, because remember, the, after the verdict, they're, depending on what happens, there's still an appeals process. So mm-hmm. the defense attorney and both sides are going to make their objections or raise their legal arguments to be um, for determination and for, and for a ruling from the judge. And then if they don't get a favorable ruling, 
probably going to appeal it. And so sometimes they are going to say, okay, you know, we made this argument, say the judge didn't agree with my Batson challenge and said there was cause for all the people that got struck on appeal. You might say, you know, those cause reasons were kind of bogus and, and really my defendant is harmed now because they've got this conviction and I want to appeal. So, you know, that throughout every step of the, every stage of the trial doesn't end at the verdict just because, you know, just because there's a conviction or, or an acquittal. There are some times when you not, I'm sorry, the acquittal, that's it, double jeopardy applies. But just because there is a verdict doesn't necessarily mean that's the end because you, you, you have the right to appeal. Yeah, and, and so, um, you know, we did kind of joke around a little bit about how ways to get out of uh, jury duty. We all appreciate those, those tips. Thank you very much. But <laughs> the reality is very important for us as black folk to make sure we show up and represent on a jury. Um, there, you know, mentioned implicit bias and so on. But um, I, in my reading, I found that there's all kinds of ways that attorneys can keep, get people stricken from jury pools. Uh, it could be something like, uh, I think someone mentioned social media before. Someone, uh, I, th I think I read somewhere that someone was previously part of a gang in their youth. Someone was singing a particular song when they walked out of court. And so they were stricken from the pool. So like, all these different kinds of things. So I think it's really important for those of us who are, who are good, sane, decent, balanced people to show up for jury duty when it's our time. I think we owe each other that much. Am I right? I would agree. I agree. I would, I would definitely agree. And, but that, that goes back to um, the next question I want to talk to a brother Flowers about. And, and, you know, now that we didn't let the black cat out of the bag, right? <laughs> we, we, didn't let the, we didn't let the cat out of the bag. You know, this jury selection process, this voir dire process, this defense, and this, you know, in the prosecution, going back and forth and asking questions to the potential jurors and striking this person for this and striking this person because, they, you know, they posted something on social media. You know, is jury selection, is the jury selection process susceptible to, uh, I guess, any type of implicit bias and racism uh, to you, uh, Brother Flowers? I mean, I know, I know it's kind of a question that we kind of answered already, but I just want to get your thoughts on that. I think it could be, um, and you have to look at the method of selecting jurors in, in, in the state or the local law where you are. So um, there's usually a method, um, it varies from state to state, but the general procedure is that um, a list of prospective jurors is chosen from the population. Uh, this list is then reduced by eliminating those who are exempt or excused or who lack certain minimum skills. Um, then jury panels are then selected at random from that list. And finally, the Wadir um, examination that we just discussed where attorneys dismiss jurors for cause. Um, so really, any of those stages, there's uh, potential for bias and racism. Um, you know, so for example, um, when you're pulling, when, when jurisdictions are pulling this list, uh, typically, um, they can use uh, voter demographics, um, but a lot of black people don't register to vote. So you're excluding a significant um, segment of the black population. Um, actually, when I used to, I used to serve as a criminal investigator for the uh, Capital Defense, um, what is it called, Indigent Defense Commission, it's hard to say. So basically, this was the office in, in Virginia um, that defended those who were tried for um, capital offenses. So our clients were on death row. As a matter of fact, one of the attorneys in our office worked in the appeals process for um, John Muhammad, the uh, DC sniper. But one of the in one of the uh, Southern Virginia counties, one of the requirements serving the jury was to um, own property, and um, most blacks didn't serve didn't own property in that jurisdiction. So most jurors are comprised of majorities, and most defendants were minorities. I was wondering when you said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you said um, there's a basic skills requirement or test or something you mentioned earlier? 
not necessarily skills or tests, but for most states, you have to be able to read. Uh, you can't have a disability that prevents you from serving. Um, there are some states that you have to be able to speak English. So there are certain mm -hmm. minimum requirements to serve as a juror. Um, but some states kind of add on to that. So the example I was using is one of the uh, jurisdictions, I can't recall, in Virginia, one of the requirements was based on property ownership. I kid you not. Um, and because of that, that excluded a large segment of, of um, minority representation. And as a result, most of the jurors, juries were comprised of, of white uh, middle class individuals, whereas most of the defendants were, you guessed it, minorities and people of color. Wow, that's so sad. And how and how long ago was this something that uh, that that, sh that was actually happening in this country? You said it was in Virginia, right? Yes. Um, so our office, and this is before, this is after I took the bar and I was waiting for my bar results. So as an investigator, our um, our strategy was to challenge the Wadir process and, and to show that it was racism. So my job was actually to go and poll the grand jury members and go to each of their houses under the rules that I was there to, you know, ask basic questions. My true angle was to determine whether they were white or black or a person of color. And then we can use that data to, to, um, to mount a successful challenge against the Wadir process, showing that there was racism and bias in the selection of those jurors. Uh, next question for you, brother. Did you find it? Did you find uh, it? Yes, we did. <laughs> we had, yes, we did. Um, absolutely, yes. Most of the um, jury members were white. As a matter of fact, I actually got, um, I had a personal story. I'll save that till later, but um, yeah, one of the um, jury members um, caught on to our strategy and then kind of roped me in, but I, I can talk about that a little later. Um, but yes, there was bias. I mean, clear, you know, clear. And so I'm, un I'm unfamiliar what strategy the office took because by the time all that was said and done, I'd already passed the bar and left. Um, but yeah, we, we had uh, sufficient evidence to show that uh, most of our defendants had a, a jury that was not their peers. And um, certainly the judge and, and the court had to kind of determine um, what to do about that. Okay. Uh, Adrian, you wanted to step in? You wanted to add something to that? I'm, I'm sure we all sitting here doing this podcast know this, but it's, it's not just the jury selection process. There's implicit bias and racism built into every single step of the process. And, you know, I'll just give you an example. A lot of the, a lot of my classmates that I started in the, DA, in the DA's office with well-meaning people, you know, wanting to do justice, but grew up in predominantly white circles and are practicing in a large urban area without appreciation for some of the nuance that comes with that. It's one of the reasons I wanted to be a prosecutor because I, you know, I, I worked in a defense clinic. I went to the People's Electric Law School. Most people who come out of there want to be, you know, public defenders. So everyone's like, oh, you want to be a prosecutor? Um, but you need to have people who look like you mm -hmm. sitting across the table from you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that implicit bias, it's, it's not just you know, we're, we're in theory beyond the days where somebody's like, I just don't like him because he's black. Um, it's a lot more subtle than that. And it shows up in a lot more subtle ways than that. One day I came to work and I said, you know, it's just really striking. I'm just looking at this long line of black men standing outside waiting to be defendants. And my white colleagues were like, wow, I never thought of that. But you wouldn't. If, if you're just looking at them at, you know, if you're not looking at the humanity and really forcing yourself to take a look at the, at the details. Mm. When I would walk into the courtroom, I would get told to wait outside for my attorney, even though I'm standing head to toe in a suit and I have my DA badge on, uh, identifica identification on, because the first thing that the people that the court staff saw was black. Never said that to the to the white attorneys. So the the implicit bias is built into everything, and I think if you if you acknowledge it 
and you're aware of it and you try to attack it, that's what's going to make you more effective when you're doing your voir dire, when you're doing your charging, when you're building your case, when you're interviewing your witnesses. Um, we, we are people who were born and raised in different areas, right? And the things that you see are the things that you know to be true. So even down to images, right? Like you coming into the courtroom, I know you were sharp. Right, you coming into the court, and they, and they said, she said, I was, yeah. So you come into the courtroom, I know you were sharp, and they said, like, hey, you got to wait outside for your attorney. No, 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 sir, I, I am the attorney, but I'm, I'm going to sit right over there, but I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you pick your- I'll be in the front, um, looking at you and your bias all day, but <laughs> that but that didn't, that didn't just happen in the Bronx, it happened to me mm-hmm. in law school as well, Yep. where I got told, wait outside for your attorney. Again, same, same circumstance. Mm-hmm have a, yeah. a clearly got an, a legal pad, a pen. I'm waiting to, you know, to, to talk to the court clerk and all they see is black. Yeah. And sometimes that's the, that's the fear that you have. And I think that's the mistrust that, you know, black and brown people have in particular of the court system, that all they're going to be seeing is a race and a stereotype and not an actual particular case. Hey, finance fans, I hope you enjoyed the Much More Than a Hashtag episode sponsored by Community Financial Investments Jury Selection Part 1. Part 2 will be coming up January 21, so you definitely don't want to miss that. Be sure to smash that subscribe button and make sure that you tune in. And also check out some other episodes that I recorded for the Much More Than a Hashtag initiative and also for the Community Financial Investments side, Community Money Podcast. Also, be sure to hit up the Community Apparel Store, link in the bio on my link tree. Thank you. Have a great day. Happy holidays. and Happy New Year to you. See you in 21. Peace. Hey, everybody. Guru Ham here again, thanking you for listening to the latest episode of the Community Money Podcast. I just want to take a little time out and ask you guys to share these episodes. If you like what you heard, please share, share, share. Look at the last five people that you texted. Do you think that they will benefit from listening to the Community Money Podcast? Do you think they will benefit from knowing how to use their money better? Do you think they will benefit from understanding how to start a business? And the things that business owners around the country and around the world are thinking about as they start their business. Because honestly, we're no different. Some of us have aspirations to have billion dollar businesses, and some of us just want to pay off our house. Some of us want to put our kids through a better college, and some of us just want to make more money and enjoy life better. So please share, share, share the Community Money Podcast. This is not a moment. This is a movement. Thank you.